Welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer, and I want to thank you so much for tuning in to episode 11. And I know I say it every week, but we really do have a great show for you this week. And normally, this is where I would hype a lead-in to a guest, and then I would say, but first, let me talk about Counterpunch and how wonderful it is. And while, of course, it is wonderful, I don't have to do that this week, because I have an excellent guest to lead off the program. I have the wonderful privilege of speaking with Joshua Frank, Managing Editor of Counterpunch. Um, Lots going on at Counterpunch. If you are a regular to the website, you probably have already noticed that, but I'm going to let Joshua tell us all about it. So with with all that being said, Joshua Frank, welcome to Counterpunch Radio. Hey, happy to be here on your popular uh, growing podcast and the listeners out there. Hello. Oh, yes. Well, we are going viral in the most viral way. (laughs) Right. Um, All right. So let us begin with the big news. I mean, of course, not Independence Day here in the United States and uh, in anticipation of Bastille Day. We're celebrating here at Counterpunch. And Joshua, tell us what we're celebrating. Uh, well, for everybody out there that's been to the website uh, within the last few days, uh, they probably noticed a pretty radical change. Um, we have completely revamped the website. It's been two years in the making. And uh, we're still offering all the same goods, but we're giving it to you in a better format um, with lots of really cool features that I think uh, people are going to really get into once they uh, start experiencing the website itself. Yeah, absolutely. And and Joshua, I think that it's important for us to note here with the most uh, austere and solemn way that we can, that we understand that change is difficult, don't we? We understand <laughs> that uh, you, you go to a website a million times every year, you're used to it looking a certain way, and then all of a sudden it looks totally different, or at least somewhat different. So um, yeah. yes, yes, there are changes, and yes, we understand that change is sometimes difficult, but tell us some of the great things about the new website. Well, as far as the changes go, I mean, you're going to come and it's still going to be the same looking counterpunch. We're keeping it very clean, very simple. Um, We don't run ads from outside, uh, you know, like tools or different. We're not hawking goods to people. We we keep it very clean. If if we're products we're selling are our own books uh, and subscriptions to the magazine. So that's all change. That's all staying the same. Um, as far as the reader readability goes, it's going to be a lot better for the 40% of counterpunchers out there that actually access the website through their mobile devices. Uh, before, our, our website was not uh, very mobile friendly, so we're going to, that's a, that's a really cool feature. I mean, if you think about it, we have about 50,000 uh, unique visits to our website a day on average, and that's kind of the low end actually of the average. So think about how many of those folks are coming into the website on their iPads or iPhones or, or whatever else, especially internationally. So that's it's going to be a really cool um, update for those folks. And then on, just on top of, of that, we're, our archives are much more streamlined, and that's going to be a process where it's not all completed yet, but over the course of the next year or so, we hope to have that all dialed in. Um, you're going to have author pages, so your favorite authors, you can actually click on their name on an article, and it'll take you to their page and show you every article that they have published with us. 
So it's going to make it a lot more user-friendly in that regard, and um, the, the website itself will remain fast and free for everybody. Yeah, and I think that's great. Like, uh, you know, just speaking for myself, having published a bunch of stuff on Counterpunch's website, I really like the fact that uh, eventually I'll be able to go, I'll be able to click on my own name, and I'll be able to see all in one place all the stuff that I've published because I forget a lot of the stuff that that uh, has gone up over the course of the last couple of years. And I know that a lot of my, you know, a lot of my favorite authors, whether we're talking about Michael Hudson or Benoit Campmark or whomever else, I can go there and I can just scroll right through and I can find all of their articles. And I can go, oh, yeah, that was a great article 12 months ago that I really appreciated. I could reference that. Yeah. Well, and if you put it in perspective, too, I mean, we've been online now for, jeez, uh, like over 15 years. Um, and we have published, Counterpunch Pubs published in uh, near 40,000 articles. So that is a lot of articles out there. And I, I can't even tell you how many times we get an email saying, hey, there was this article about such and such that was like two years ago in March. <laughs> Can you help yeah. me find that? <laughs> and, and it's because it wasn't it wasn't easy to find. And we're, we're trying to make that easier for folks um, because Counterpunch is a, a very unique tool for people um, to use to <laughs> in arguments or, or in just sharing knowledge and, and other really cool things. Um, we're, we're making it easier, more accessible for everybody, which I think is really the, at the heart of what Counterpunch is. And, and this new website revamp is keeping that spirit alive. Yeah, and the other thing that I that I've noticed, and I'm you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think that there was a lot of effort and and focus on making sure that the new website is really um, streamlined as far as social media goes about the ability to share articles to Facebook, to Twitter, to all of the other social media platforms. Which, of course, uh, whether you love them or hate them or, or or sort of in between, is really I think essential now in 2015, isn't it? <laughs> it is, and uh, it's been a kind of a, a running uh, discussion here at Counterpunch. My co-editor, Jeffrey St. Clair, is, is quick to point out that Alexander Coburn was not very uh, excited about having Counterpunch on Facebook or Twitter, and uh, so we are a little bit late to the game, um, but our social media editor, Nat St. Clair, does a great job of, of putting our stuff out there, and we just surpassed 25,000 uh, Twitter followers. Uh, we're growing on on Facebook. I don't even know how many we have, over 50,000 or something like that, which is pretty remarkable considering we only have been on social media now for about three years. Um, so we're, we're, you know, we're, we're catching up. I mean, we're, we're all kind of Luddites. So it's kind of interesting that we're <laughs> yeah. involved in running a website that is uh, probably, it's safe to say, the most popular uh, American or English language uh, website. Um, about left uh, politics and issues in, in the in the world, um, we have a, a huge international audience, and we're very proud of that, and we want to keep that uh, alive and well. And, and social media is a big part of that. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, by the way, let me just let me just say how absolutely shocked I am that Alexander Coburn had an issue <laughs> with uh, catching up with social media. That is just that is shocking. Well, and, it, and there's going to be a lot of readers out there um, that have been longtime Counterpunch supporters that would uh, agree with that. And um, but we want to keep Counterpunch alive and healthy, and and we have to, uh, you know, we have to change with the, the changing times a little bit um, without giving up our ethics and changing that and we're not going to so people can rest assured that we're not we're not changing the content we're actually just making it more readily available for people and another great thing i think about the website is now and i had a couple emails today people didn't even realize that we have a print uh, subscription magazine 
And we're going to be able to, to show that off a little bit more with this new website and, and hopefully entice people to subscribe because we, we are a pretty bare bones operation, as you know, and any um, subscriptions are, are what uh, help fund us and keep us going. Yeah, and that's what I keep uh, keep hammering home every week as well, is that on the one hand, when you get that print magazine subscription, I mean, you're getting something, you're getting a really great product, you're getting these excellent issues with political analysis and, and cultural critique and all kinds of very, really interesting stuff that you won't find anywhere else. At the same time, I think maybe equally important is the fact that you're kind of a participant in the Counterpunch Project. You're really part of keeping this whole thing going and keeping it great. Growing. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we, we feel like Counterpunch is a family and all of our readers and subscribers are part of that family. And uh, we want to give back to that, you know, to that family. And I think in one way we're doing it is with this website. And it's, uh, it's been a long haul, you know, like I said, it's been about a two year project. And with those 40,000 or so articles and transferring all that information over, this is sort of the re the third reiteration of Counterpunch. Um, Jeff could go back into the history of, of using some of those very primitive uh, HTML formats to put Counterpunch out every day. And um, we're making it a little easier on the back end, um, but we're making it more flexible as well. And, and we're just catching up with things and um, we're pretty excited about it. Absolutely. You know, and one of the other things that I'm always kind of talking about here on the podcast is that Counterpunch is, well, at least in my in my mind, it's something really special because quite frankly, you know, I don't know of another another website, another place online that you can find what I would consider to be truly independent media from a left perspective that really doesn't fall into what I would consider, you know, the pseudo alternative media that that quasi controlled place. Place on the you know quote unquote progressive left, and so I mean to me, I can go back a number of years, actually more years than you probably would believe, um, reading Counterpunch and following it, and seeing that Counterpunch actually takes a lot of positions that really are not aligned with the controlled progressive left. And I mean, if you look at the wars in Libya, Syria, what's going on in Eastern Europe, Ukraine, etc., Counterpunch in many ways stands apart from a lot of these other left outlets and I think that that's important so let's talk a little bit about that and I I just want to kind of put front and center that one of the major issues that's really I think prominent on the left and social media and just in print media in general right now is the um, let's call it the Bernie bandwagon Bernie Sanders and the the hype around Bernie and you know I think counterpunch is really kind of setting itself very much apart actually having a critical analysis about Bernie Sanders. So what's your take on that and the importance of being able to provide that critical perspective? Well, you know, this this sort of election cycle, uh, progressive bandwagon bullshit, essentially, has been going on now since I can remember. And it's sort of something that's cyclical and it comes around every four years or so. And we're 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 all told that we need to get on the bandwagon of you know a Dennis Kucinich or or someone else working within the Democratic Party, um, and in doing so, we're going to further progressive causes. We're going to pull the the main candidate to the left and, and all of this. And, and of course, if you read the Nation magazine, if you read a lot of those a lot of our I I would say competitors, um, they they are going to toe the Democrat line. 
Um, and we are fiercely independent and we are not going to succumb to, to any of those things. We are going to continue to stay independent, you know, and, and we've published, and I wrote a piece myself, but we've published a lot of critical uh, pieces of Bernie, but we've also had some, you know, semi half-hearted, uh, warm, welcoming uh, tones as well in some of the pieces that we've run. And I think that's a beauty of counterpunch. You know, we, we will provide this platform to have a dialogue about it. Cause I think that's what's so important. Um, you know, a lot of the other outlets aren't going to even give you another side. And so we're going to continue to do so. Um, Cause you know, it, as history has shown with it, we are uh, probably not going to see Bernie come out of the primaries alive. And we're already going to position ourselves to be critical of whatever candidate comes out because in our view, you know, this is about movement building. It's not about uh, election winning. That's right. And I think also it's it's also about not buying into the constant delusions and illusions that are presented before us, you know, whether it was Obama, whether it was Kucinich or whomever, you know, you see mm-hmm. this over and over and over again. And, and it's almost like and, you know, actually, I talked about this with Paul Street a few a few weeks ago when he was on the program that in many ways, the liberal, you know, base, the progressive base is almost uh, will, willfully and consciously accepting these delusions, almost asking to be deceived and deluded so that they can then support it and then turn around ultimately and say, well, we were betrayed. Right. And, you know, when you look at someone like Dennis Kucinich, which I think uh, and on a lot of issues when compared to Bernie Sanders is actually better, you know, especially when it comes to foreign policy. I mean, I think Absolutely. that's where Sanders falls off the cliff. Um, but even with Dennis Kucinich, at the end of the day, he was a Democrat. And at the end of the day, he wanted his followers to support, you know, whoever it was that came out of the primary. So whether it was John Kerry or, or someone else. And that is a killer. That's a killer for progressive movements. That was a killer for the anti-war movement. Um, it was definitely uh, during the Obama election was a killer for uh, for that. And it was definitely for the Occupy Wall Street movement. Um, at, at, they want those progressive votes. And that's the role Bernie Sanders, I believe, is playing right now. So we have to talk about it. I think it's very important to talk about it. And I think it's important to be critical of, of Bernie Sanders um, not only his positions, but also the role he plays within the Democratic establishment and the role that he's going to be playing as the, the election uh, matures. Uh, yeah, exactly. And uh, before we before we shift gears to another uh, political um, quasi-phenomenon happening, um, I just want to ask you, since you actually literally wrote the book on the subject, um, give us your perspective from uh, drawing on your historical experiences with regard to Howard Dean and what the mm-hmm. Democratic establishment really means. Because I think that today, for whatever reason, people are somehow believing that Bernie Sanders is going to come in and he's just going to radically alter the entire landscape of the Democratic Party. <laughs> tell us, tell right. us about how that's totally ridiculous. <laughs> well, people might remember Howard Dean. <laughs> they might remember that might. he was this this insurgent candidate from uh, the same state as Bernie Sanders. Believe it or not, that uh, was going to come and shake the tree and and uh, was going to provide a voice for a lot of progressive voters that felt alienated. And what we saw with that was a complete collapse of his campaign. Uh, We also saw uh, the Democratic establishment ruin him and run against him, Um, even though his positions were very much aligned with them, uh, especially through his history in Vermont. 
Um, what I think his campaign showed was uh, a lot of things that people have learned or campaigns have learned from since then, which was, you know, it's credit card activism. It's easy. You know, he was the first one to raise money online with small donations, many donations. It, it made his campaign seem viable. It made his campaign seem like, hey, the grassroots can take on the establishment. But at the end of the day, the Democrats are too corrupt to be taken on. And they're too, too far too corrupt to be taken on in a national election by by someone like Howard Dean or in this case, Bernie Sanders. And I think what we learned from Howard Dean's case was uh, that it's, 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 it's a total dead end. Um, at the end of the day, he, he totally was creamed in Iowa and New Hampshire. His campaign went off the rails. And all of those people, literally tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people that donated to his campaign we're, we're left with nothing. I mean, it, how, how much better, you know, looking back in retrospect of, of his campaign um, and others as well, Dennis Kucinich and others, uh, think how great it would have been if all of those people were working outside the system to build movements, to build uh, third party independent, uh, you know, political parties, whether it's the Green Party or something else. That, it's a lot of people out there that are progressive minded. But when it comes to action, when it comes to voting, the Democrats have them corralled and it's it's a real killer. And I, I see Bernie Sanders doing it all over again this election season. Yeah, exactly. I think that many have argued that Bernie's role is precisely to do that corralling that you're talking about, to make sure that those who might stray from the flock are kind of brought back in in this way. Um, but you mentioned something else, um, the the Green Party and the notion of third party politics. And, you know, a lot of people have said to me at various times, but 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 what about the Greens? What about the Greens? Now, I'm not going to, you know, sit here and shit all over them because I think that there's a lot of positive things that can be said. But I think that one also has to take a really critical perspective. Um, so what's your take on the Green Party and, and the trajectory that it has taken, let's say, from the days of Ralph Nader when he was really holding up a truly progressive line to today? Right. You know, I, I, I'm the same way. I have a lot of friends that are Green Party um, advocates. Uh, they work within the party system all over the country. They do a lot of great work. They try to get local candidates elected. They do some really good stuff. I think um, they're, they're, they're on the comeback. Um, I think what happened uh, at the height of the Nader campaign and that movement, I think, um, that was really centered around Nader and it was in 2000 against Gore uh, and building the Green Party. I think what happened was at the end of that campaign, at the end of the election, the Green Party didn't back up Nader. They did not challenge the notion that he was a spoiler. Yeah. They did not. And, and I think that really that really put them in a position that, hey, we're, we're really not that serious about the national you know, landscape because we're too afraid of being considered spoilers. We want to build from the grassroots up. And in doing so, I think they lost a lot of followers. I think they lost a lot of street cred. And I think it set them back quite a bit because the next election coming around, it's hard to take a, a party serious if they don't really want to run a full-fledged election across the country. I mean, I would argue that their dollars would be best spent by campaigning in swing states and really putting the pressure on uh, the liberal Democratic candidates to take better positions. And in that's, you know, I I would like the Green Party or any independent party uh, on the left to be a spoiler. That would show us and show some muscle. You know, you, you we can learn a lot from the, the crazy right wing, right? I mean, we they are not afraid to take on the Republicans and put pressure on them. And they're not afraid to lose elections. 
and they're not afraid of be called spoilers, a tea party, etc. You know, that it's but the left is, is just too timid. The Green Party has been far too timid. And uh, I think them not challenging the notion that Nader was a spoiler was a big killer. And of course, as most of the of counterpunchers know, uh, Nader was far from a spoiler. Uh, Gore, of course, lost his home state. They also we always forget that he had Jill Lieberman as his vice presidential yeah, candidate. Exactly right. <laughs> We're supposed to vote for a Lieberman ticket. I mean, yeah. it's and and of course he won Florida as well. He, he ran just a completely awful campaign. But it's it's much easier to blame Ralph Nader, of course, uh, even though uh, you know a lot of the the, the polling shows that he didn't. Uh, he took far more votes away from from. Uh, the Republican candidate than he did the Democrat in places like Florida, uh, which is pretty interesting. But that's because he was running an independent campaign and a lot of people are afraid of the Democrats. Uh, but the, the Greens really went off the rails with that. And and, um, and I think they're, they've been trying to get back since. I think that also, and I'm, I'm going to say something that may be quite unpopular with a lot of my uh, Green Party friends and, and, and contacts and associates or whatever, but um, one of the other problems I think that the Green Party has encountered and continues to encounter as we speak is an inability to really take an international perspective. I think that the Green Party becomes so focused on becoming, uh, speaking in a respectable way, they're so focused in, in being, quote unquote, taken seriously that they somehow forget that there's an entire world of oppressed people uh, living under neo-colonial domination who are being exploited, who are being uh, who have uh, uh, U.S. bombs raining down on them and so forth. I think that the Green Party is very very weak when it comes to siding with oppressed people internationally and in many ways I think that they fall into the trap of a lot of the, uh, the, the you know, let's call it the Western white left. Oh, I, I would totally agree. And I, I wouldn't say that uh, about every person that's involved in the Green Party, but I would say as the Green Party no, as a whole. Speaking. Yeah, nationally speaking. Nationally, yeah, absolutely. And I, they're simply not feisty enough. Um, they're not great organizers and they're not feisty enough. And we need feistiness. We need anger. We need people that are ready to organize and we need people to rally. And uh, the Green Party isn't that party right now. Um, potentially in the future they could be, you know, and I would support that. Um, but in the case of someone like Bernie Sanders, he wants nothing to do with that. And I think his candidacy, uh, for example, right now actually impacts and hurts the Green Party tremendously because and that's exactly what the Democrats want. They don't want an independent you know, party on the left challenging them uh, in any fashion, locally or nationally. Um, and Bernie's campaign really is meant to uh, keep those progressive voters within the Democratic establishment. Um, and, and as Bernie has said, at the end of the day, he is going to to continue to support whatever candidate comes out of the primaries, likely Hillary Clinton. She's up by, I mean, upwards of 40 to 50 percent all over the country in every primary around. Um, and he will support her candidacy. So what what are those voters supposed to do? What are those people that, that supported, believed in, you know, Bernie's um, domestic vision for you know, income, you know, challenging income inequality, Wall Street and the rest of it. They're going to do the uh, same. They're going to do the same thing that they do every time. They're going to tell right. us, OK, well, now it's time to hold our noses and vote for Hillary because we don't want Jeb or we don't want whoever it might be. I mean, it's the same. It's just like you said in the beginning. I mean, it's the cycle over and over and over again. Right. 
right? And, and it's the lesser evil politics. And at the end of the day, the Canada is still evil. And we all know that. And, and we've been uh, here at Counterpunch and, and elsewhere, we, we've been holding Obama's feet to the fire the whole time. We'll continue to do that no matter who comes out uh, of the elections, um, because this is about movement building. You know, this is about challenging imperialism. This is about building a, a just and economic or in, you know, uh, domestic policy here in the country. Uh, it's about challenging Wall Street. It's about challenging corporate corruption. And uh, we'll continue to do that. And, and a candidate isn't going to do that. And no one candidate is going to do that if there's no real movement. Yeah, exactly. You know, and in closing, I mean, look, bottom line is you don't hear Bernie saying any of these things. You don't hear him speaking out about NATO expansion in Eastern Europe or about the wars that the U.S. is prosecuting or whatever, because quite frankly, he supports most of that stuff. Well, so, he does. Yeah, right. Right. You know, he supports the NATO expansion. He supports, you know, uh, sanctions on Moscow. He supported Israel's attacks on Gaza last summer. Exactly. He, you know, he supports the endless, you know, Pentagon budget and the wars in Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, Syria, you name it. And so he, the, it, he isn't challenging U.S. foreign policy, and, and that's really important. Exactly. And the bottom line is if you're not challenging U.S. foreign policy, if you're not challenging this imperial system, you can't be taken seriously by anyone who considers themselves progressive-minded, socialist, communist, anarchist, whatever it may be, as uh, on the left. You cannot take a candidate like that seriously. Conversely, when it comes to looking at the Green Party or some of the other third-party options, you see very little in the way of, of true choice. And this brings us, I think, to the final point and why I think Counterpunch is so important, because Counterpunch is in many ways sort of a locus of this anti-establishment, anti-traditional politics perspective on the left. And I think that that's one of the most important functions that Counterpunch serves is a platform for a critical analysis, but also for dialogue and hopefully in many meaningful ways for organizing. Right. And I, for all those Bernie Sanders, you know, supporters out there, and a lot of them read Counterpunch, and we've had a lot of angry emails come, come our way because of the, the pieces we've been publishing being critical of this campaign. Uh, at, at the end of the primaries, I hope they'll come back, and I hope they'll continue to read Counterpunch, and I hope they'll realize that we're here to stay regardless of, of whatever is happening. And uh, we're going to hold everybody's feet to the fire no matter what party they belong to. Well, absolutely. And I can tell you right now, they're going to come back because, quite frankly, where else are they going to go to get this sort of stuff? I mean, look around. I mean, you know, I've been involved in alternative media for a little while now. I've been, you know, here and there. And it's grim, man. There's not a lot of places out there. And thank God for Counterpunch. Yeah, absolutely. And I, it, and uh, just a little teaser, we do have a book coming out uh in the fall on on Hillary Clinton by Diana Johnstone, and it is a zinger, and I think a lot of people are going to uh, be pretty excited about that. Excellent. Well, thank you. We're, we're going to look forward to that. And um, so Joshua Frank, Managing Editor of Counterpunch, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks for all the hard work, getting the website up and running, and all of the stuff you've done to this point. I mean, it's really, really excellent work. Thanks, Eric. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's a team effort and everybody here at Counterpunch is very excited about uh, the podcast and all the work you're doing as well. So we, we really appreciate it and um, welcome to the family. Oh, shucks. Thanks, buddy. Thank <laughs> you. All right. And um, stick with us on the other side of the break. We're going to talk more independent media. We're going to be speaking with Mickey Huff of Project Censored. Lots of interesting stuff to cover with him. He's always a real he's a, he's a riot to speak with. So uh, in any event, stick with us on the other side of the break. Listening to Counterpunch Radio. My name's Eric Drates. We'll be right back. 
Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer, and um, we just had a really excellent conversation with uh, Joshua Frank, managing editor of Counterpunch. And, you know, we were talking a lot about some of the exciting developments at Counterpunch, the new website, all of this stuff. I mean, obviously, you just listened to it. So, um, I think it's important, though, to to maintain a focus on this on this issue of independence and independent media and alternative analysis. I think that this is critical. I mean, obviously, for me, I'm very much self interested in this. I kind of roam that that landscape. I do my thing, and I'm lucky enough to have Mickey Huff on the program with me. Uh, Mickey Huff, if you don't know him already, although I'm sure some of you do, he is the director of Project Censored, a very very important project for everybody to be following. Project Censored. He's also the host, uh, co-host, I should say, of the Project Censored show on Pacifica Radio. He is a professor of social science and history at Diablo Valley College. Uh, Mickey Huff is, let me put it this way, he is, I think, one of the best people we have in the United States at digging through the propaganda, digging through the narrative, and really kind of bringing to light a lot of the stories that either are missed or are totally uh, suppressed in the media and in the mainstream narrative. So, I'm happy to have him. Mickey Huff, welcome to Counterpunch Radio. Thanks, Eric. It's a delight to be on. Long-time reader of, of Counterpunch and uh, also a 
fan of your work. So it's uh, it's great to be in conversation with you here. Absolutely, thank you so much. And um, look, I mean, the, the the truth is, we're talking about we're talking about alternative media. We're talking about the importance of alternative media and uh, Counterpunch and Project Censored. I think are two of the best outlets for that. So let's begin there. Um, I just want to get your take on on this general question on the importance of independent media. Specifically, Mickey, what I mean is not just why it's important, but why is it so important right now, given the nature of the corporate media, given the nature of this seemingly all-encompassing propaganda matrix? Yeah, that's a fantastic place to start, and there are six corporations in the United States that control roughly 90% of the news media, and those boards of directors... Uh, in turn, often have cross-board of directorship seats where they sit on boards of directors of other corporations. Uh, some of these, uh, obviously, these, these corporations then uh, have interests uh, that behoove them, and maybe from the outside one could call it a conflict of interest or conflicts of interests. Um, but they also, uh, you know, have relationships in terms of advertising and, and capital accumulation and so forth. And a lot of that's behind the scenes. And this is, again, why, you know, we say the importance of alternative media, you know, it, it's really a timeless kind of thing. But I would argue that it's gotten maybe more important as time has gone on, mm-hmm. as cor- fewer and fewer corporations control what's erroneously referred to as the mainstream media. Um, there's nothing mainstream about the narratives that are peddled by corporate media. We use that term instead because it more accurately describes who's controlling these narratives that come through CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, the network news, even increasingly places like PBS and NPR as they get more and more corporate uh, funding. So we, we at Project Censored, we highlight and celebrate what we find are the most important underreported or censored stories every year from the alternative or independent press, right? And this doesn't necessarily mean to imply that all of the people that that are writing independently or in the alternative, uh, so-called alternative media, are are quote-unquote objective. Uh, It means that they are more transparently doing reporting, Right, you can sort you can see where they're getting information. You can see what what um, maybe uh, particular issues or agendas might be along with the reporting. And when I say that, what I mean is there's a big difference between corporate agendas and public agendas, right? Private agendas for profit versus public in public interest. And what the independent and alternative media tend to do far better and far more often which also contributes to their lack of these stories being picked up by corporate media, is that they expose things like corporate collusion with government. They, they focus on the narratives that are in the public interest, right, for people like you and me, uh, other demographics, right, in the society. And so I think it's really important now, I would say, again, now more than ever, we have the Internet as a major and powerful tool for research, reading, and so forth. We have social media. We have all these uh, you know, sort of uh, technological ways that we can communicate with each other. But most folks seem to go to the same sources. Most, most folks still seem to go to the corporate sites uh, and so forth. And I think that, um, you know, it's, it's, again, a better, worse situation in terms of, of what's there. I mean, we do have access to so much information at our fingertips, but we still have to have critical thinking skills and media literacy behind it. And that's one of the things Project Censored really prides itself in doing is media uh, education 
and we try to teach media literacy, critical thinking skills, and so on. So people can go out and find these independent sources, find these alternative sources, and they can start to see for themselves, right, the biases of corporate media and the propaganda that comes through corporate media and, and often government agencies. So I think we are at a place right now where it's incredibly important, and to paraphrase FCC, uh, former FCC Commissioner Nick Johnson, oft quoted by uh, media scholar Robert McChesney, you know, regardless of whatever your primary concern or interest uh, is, whether as an activist, as a, you know, in, in terms of your civic duties, if the second thing is not media, right, or media, so-called media reform uh, or, or support of independent media, you're going to have a really hard time getting support for what your primary issue is. So me, the importance of media literacy, I think, you know, can't, can't really be understated. It's something that really Im, it, it impacts us all. And I think we all have an obligation to try to be informed citizens. Yeah, there's no doubt, and that's a great that's a great point. And I would just stress also, um, speaking for myself, and um, especially people who have come of age politically uh, and ideologically in, let's say, the last 15 years. I mean, one of the defining moments I think of this of this generation has been the lies that were sold to the war in Iraq to go to war in Iraq, and that is, I think, in many ways, a case study in the way in which the corporate media outright lies or distorts the truth or obscures or conceals or suppresses all of the key information in order to serve the agenda of the ruling class, the ruling establishment, the war makers, the military industrial complex, all of those interests that control and operate this corporate media machine. And I think that um, if you've come of age in this time period, as I have, I mean, I was in college when the Iraq war started, um, I think that media literacy and the importance of independent media is so central to your entire thinking, that is to say, if you're a thinking political activist. Yeah, I think you're right about that. And what's we, what we've discovered um, at you know, Project Censored, we're, we're in our 39th year, um, and, and this is one thing that people often forget about us. They, they know us for these sop stories. They know us for highlighting independent press stories. Of course, we do our own studies and analysis in our books every year at Seven Stories Press, and people can learn more about us at projectcensored.org and see a lot of the things that we do. But we're not the organization, organization that just covers unanswered questions about 9-11 or uh, we we're not just the organization that talks about you know the collusion of big you know big pharma or big agribusiness and public policy, or we're not just the organization that talks about you know the million dead Iraqis, right? We're a media literacy organization, and we work with students on over 20 campuses across the United States, really working to teach media literacy, and that's what makes Project Censored, I think, unique and different from a lot of other. Uh, sort of media-related or media watchdog organizations is one of our prime objectives, literally, is education. And we are now working in a partnership with ACME, smartmedia.net. Um, uh, uh, Nolan Higdon works with us at Project Censored and with ACME. And we are now working on something called the Global Critical Media Literacy Project to launch here this fall. We're, we're, what we have found is that there's a paucity of media literacy education going on in our schools, especially at the high school level, but even in the college level, right? And I mean, I teach critical thinking, uh, political economy, history, etc. And it, it always strikes me, you know, that the lack of discernment that seems to go into where where uh, people are getting information is that's a that's a catastrophic and slippery slope of a problem that will follow people through the rest of their lives. 
So we try to deal with teaching people. Not we don't try to tell people what to think. We're trying to teach people basic tenets of critical thinking. We work with Elliot Cohen, a professor in Florida, uh, who does ethics analysis and also runs uh, runs a critical thinking institute. Uh, you know, so again, we partner up with a lot of different people in a lot of different groups, really on outreach and education. And I think that if you pick up any of the censored volumes, uh, you'll discover that the various chapters in there are ideal for teaching situations. And that doesn't have to be formal in the classroom, by the way. They're conversation starters, and that's really where a lot of education begins, right? Is what agribusiness giants attempt to science and discredit scientists who research and reveal herbicides as health threats. That sounds crazy. Well, sure, but it's also true, and it's one of our stories from a couple years ago. You got picked up in a few places like you know, Democracy Now! or a few other places. But for the most part, those are the stories, as you put it a moment ago, those are the stories that are ignored by corporate media because of the collusion, the corruption. And you know that story doesn't support the ruling class. That story doesn't support Wall Street. That story doesn't support agribusiness. It supports the public's right to know, and it contributes to the commons of information that we as people all have a right to. And in fact, free media and free access to information is something that's actually protected under the UN Declaration of Human Rights is Article 19. And we take that very seriously at Project Censored, and we think education is the key vehicle for creating a more informed and then more uh, aware society in terms of how people practice their civic duties. Exactly right. But, you know, at the same time as you're saying that, it also occurs to me that, quote-unquote, education is also one of the premier or, or, or central vehicles for uh, disinformation and for the establishment, the establishment of what we could call dominant narratives, of dominant mm-hmm. discourse and all of these things. So if you've gone to college, you know, and you've sat through those courses, I mean, well, just I could speak from my own my own perspective it's almost as if my my the my real political learning didn't start until long since i left college you know because when i was in when i was in school uh with the exception of you know a handful of cool professors who would get you into some interesting stuff for the most mm-hmm. part it's the dominant media the dominant narrative constantly mm-hmm. being reinforced and so let's talk a little bit about that and you know this tangible and abstract uh simultaneously collusion between the dominant media the corporate media, the dominant narrative, and that of academia, how do they in some ways work hand in hand to kind of keep the, um, let's call it the masses, from thinking critically? Well, you've, had, you've got the, the uh, tyranny of the common core, the no child left behind, the so-called race to the top, uh, the privatization of education, the attack on tenure, the adjunct armies that now populate our schools that have very little in the way of technical support. Um, we have places like California where they, they pass laws and try to pass further laws on, you know, what kind of criticism is permissible on college campuses, mm-hmm. what kind of things professors are allowed to st- say. Of course, the case of uh, Stephen Salata, most recently at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, and I'm being denied a position on the basis of a few tweets he wrote. Look, you don't have to be a genius to read through that. I mean, the, the fact that the guy is critical of Israeli occupation of Palestine is a big no-no. It's a big no-no for donors. It's a big no-no for big corporations. It's a big no-no, according to APAC, and they have a lot of influence on what goes on in our government and around the United States. 
and again, the the genius of the propaganda even behind that is to to smear somebody who criticizes Israeli policy as anti-Semitic, and that's a great ad hominem attack. It's it's a wonderful red herring. It's a great distraction and appeal to emotion based on you know the history of uh, what what's happened you know with Jewish people around the world. But it's also again, I would say uh, it's it's a diversion from the reality that academic freedom is something that is under attack. And it is made to be seen as though, well, we're just trying to clean up the academy from these rabble-rouser voices and these people that have these agendas. What's interesting is the biggest agenda is the one that you introduced this question with, right? The biggest agenda is the invisible one that we don't get to see, right? It's on the test. It's in the corporately published textbook. That's the information you learn. I couldn't help but remember my own days back in, in, uh, as a history major and in grad school, uh, you know, actually not reading Howard Zinn, for example, until I graduated. Yeah, me too. I mean, yeah, totally. I mean, so when I teach my, my, my classes, I come out and say right up, this is the unhistory of the United States, right? This is, you know, the untold history, as Oliver Stone or Peter Kuznick might might say. But the point is, is that I work on the narratives that are counter to the dominant narratives. narratives. That doesn't mean I dismiss the, the dominant narratives. They have to be introduced. They have to be analyzed and discussed for people to understand the context and the framework here. But the, they also have to understand that to see wh- whose stories are being left out, which stories are not being told, and why. And when we introduce people to that structure in education, that's, in my view, that's what it means to be getting an education, right? It is not an indoctrination. It's an invitation for people to start thinking independently. As Emma Goldman once said, the, the most unpardonable sin in society is independence of thought, right? And this is what we try to foster. And at Project Censored, we're not waiting for, you know, the so-called media reform movement, which is a Trojan horse for corporatization, privatization, attack on education, uh, and churning out, you know, more automatons and, uh, you know, cubicle workers rather than actual critical thinkers and so forth. But we're not waiting for that to happen because we realize that the educational system is under attack and academic freedom is under attack. But that doesn't mean that we can't take our sections of it and do what we think an education should do, and that's churn out more critical thinkers, right? And as our founder, Carl Jensen, said, particularly regarding journalism and journalism schools, is that they should be churning out far more muckrakers and far fewer buck takers, (laughs) (laughs) right? And so we think that there's an avenue in education, and that's why we work with uh, professors across the United States that have that as their goal in education and that as their mission. And again, I agree with you that we're not just countering the propaganda of textbooks. We're dealing with systemic assault on academic freedom. And it's interesting that, you know, we, we find ourselves in academ- academia, uh, you know, as professors working with each other. But we're working through the system to try to, you know, again, illustrate what's possible and illustrate that, you know, yes, we're under attack and yes, these things are real. But if we can't reclaim, you know, the purpose of higher education uh, out of the, you know, top-down, you know, kind of enforcers in the society or the establishment dom- dominant narratives, if we can't take that in higher education under the aegis of the right to know, free speech and expression, you know, then we're really on a fast track to fascism. And I don't mean, 
you know, to invoke, you know, Nazi imagery and goose-stepping and so forth in this capacity, right? What I mean is a fascist culture, a society that is closed or enclosed, right, rather than open. And I think education is a great way to do that, and when I say that, I don't mean the top-down kind of propaganda that is part of the so-called reform movements. I mean literally teaching people how to think, leading them to information that is being excluded, and then allowing them to come to their own conclusions. There's no doubt. And it's, I think one of the other things too, is as you're saying that you're, you're teaching people how to think, but at the same time, this, the academia and the, the corporate media and just the, the sort of establishment in general, one of the things that they also do is they're also trying to teach people and to show people how to think, but they're not thinking, they're not showing them how to think critically. What they are doing is they're creating a climate of what many have called as Orwell famously said, you know, groupthink. Right. Yeah. And 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 this issue of groupthink, I think, is really uh, dangerous. And I think that it has really reared its ugly head even more so in recent years. I mean, if you just from the progressive left and the, the, the radical left in general, if you look at issues like Libya, the war on Libya, the war on Syria, if you look at what's happening in Ukraine, I mean, these are issues that are in the headlines right now as we speak or in recent years. The groupthink surrounding all of these issues is absolutely staggering and moreover the way in which people who had a different perspective on that were publicly bashed for taking that perspective and for forcefully arguing it I think that kind of climate that climate of uh, uh, derogatory assaults that climate of fear that's the fascistic element that you're talking about and unfortunately I think it is very pervasive in our culture today especially on the left You know, Eric, I hate to have to agree with you uh, again, but I'm afraid that I am in total agreement. And, you know, at Project Censored, we've come under attack. uh, And, you know, I could could add to your list of topics. Oh, I just just named three of them. (laughs) You just named a few, and so we'll stick with those for now. Um, But we've done shows on Syria. We've done shows on Libya. We've done stories on Ukraine. Uh, and you know we've we've received some pretty pretty negative feedback, even from people in the progressive community, as you say. I mean, again, and I, it's interesting that I we often get more um, uh, venomous kind of critique or bashing from the left For than sure. we often get from the right and other places, yeah. um, because I guess we're supposed to have some ideological conformity uh, on the basis of these these kinds of of, of issues, like. Uh, quote-unquote humanitarian intervention, an Orwellian term, if ever there was. Yep. Um, but, but, you know, when we reported about this, uh, the business in Syria and Assad and the, and the, and the gas attacks and so on, we were, we were saying that, like, well, hold on, you know, this doesn't mean that we're saying Assad should be winning human rights awards across the world, or, or many other leaders for that matter, by the way, including our own. Um, but why can't we question this? Why can't we verify this information? And why is it that if anybody doesn't toe the line on Libyan Gaddafi or Assad in Syria, that they're, they're either conspiracy theorists or my favorite, of course, with vis-a-vis Ukraine is, is Putin and Russia, right? If you bother to critique anything that the U.S. and NATO is doing in you know, Ukraine, uh, suddenly you're pro-Putin, you know, suddenly, and I know you've experienced this. I know uh, uh, Pepe Escobar has experienced this. Um, and it's, 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 it's riveting, actually, to me that people are really so blinded by the groupthink problem in, this, in, this, in this, these examples that they can't seem to apply you know, critical reasoning skills to their own process, right? They, it's amazing. For example, another, another one, 
right, is sort of a, you know, corporate, there's a general distrust among left, uh, the left in the United States of corporations, of corporate power, of collusions between corporate power and government, right? Except when you bring up, uh, you know, some other issue, like when you bring up one specific thing about that, right? It's, it's one thing, on one hand, you could say, well, of course, big oil lies about the environment and they pay big money to put out propaganda, and we all know this. But for some reason, big pharma doesn't. Uh, we're supposed to trust that, that big pharma uh, isn't interested in profits and, you know, the, the drugs that doctors tell people to take for one thing or another. And then 10 years later, they concoct 10 other studies that say, oh, wait a minute, it was wrong. There's a new drug for that. Uh, there's not allowed to be any suspicion there. I think one of the big, um, uh, one of the, one of the big sticks that, that's being used for people that question sort of these, these narratives, right, that actually are coming from places like big oil, big ag, big pharma, fill-in-the-blank, military-industrial complex. If you question that kind of research and that kind of thinking, you're called anti-science, right, or something to that effect. Um, and again, the, the research, of course, on things like climate change is very real and very corroborated. But when we go to other areas like GMOs um, or certain medications or medical treatments, if you go outside the Western pro uh, corporate pro big pharma model, you know, you're, you're basically seen as a nutcase or a lunatic. And that's very useful at tarring, feathering, and labeling people in that way because you really take away from what people are actually saying and arguing, right? Like when you're talking about what the U.S. and NATO are actually doing in Ukraine and supporting the Nazis, the neo Nazis in, in Ukraine and funneling $5 billion into the place and Joe Biden's kid mysteriously gets a job at the big, you know, on the board of the natural gas company there. I mean, what, I mean, how can, you, how can somebody with a straight face not critique that as it's happening there, particularly if they've been open to criticize it when it happens anywhere else? It's yeah, fascinating. To that's me. right. And, you know, you use the term and, and it's a perfect segue for me because I wanted to bring it up anyway, the term conspiracy theory and conspiracy theorist and the way that that term is used as a as a pejorative term in an mm -hmm. attempt in a, in a in a way to, yeah, I mean, to smear somebody, to discredit them, to uh, to make them seem like, you know, all ideas that exist outside of the mainstream understanding of something that they're all the same, that if you that if you question what the nature of ISIS is and where ISIS came from and the entire war in Syria, if you question the motivation, you question the agenda and you question how all of that evolved and you believe that there was collusion and all of this, suddenly somehow it's equal to believing that Elvis never died or that, you know what I mean? Or yeah. like that you didn't land on the moon or something like this, you know? And this, this uh, sort of broad brush notion that all of these things are somehow equivalent, I think that that is one of the most pernicious aspects of this term conspiracy theorist. So let's talk a little bit about that and the role of a term like conspiracy theory in essentially shutting out alternative narratives, because I think that that is really what it's about. Certainly, there are all kinds of conspiracy theories that are discredited, that are ridiculous, that shouldn't be uh, taken seriously, that don't stand up to scrutiny. But at the same time, there are a lot of things that many in the uh, so-called, you know, let's call it the pseudo-alternative media world would call conspiracy 
conspiracy theories that are very much conspiracy facts. And I'll just point to one thing, and I already mentioned it. I've been pretty uh, vocal about the entire issue in the, the war in Syria from the very beginning. In 2011 and 2012, I was called an, a, a pro-Assad conspiracy theorist because I said uh-huh. there was an international campaign of collusion among many different countries to destabilize that country, to send terrorists into that country in order to destroy it for a geopolitical agenda. And then all of a sudden, the New York Times is corroborating that. Reuters is corroborating that. Now we have the DIA, the Defense Intelligence Agency report from 2012 corroborating that. All of a sudden, the conspiracy theories become a conspiracy fact. Interesting how that happened. It's also interesting about how that goes down the memory hole. Like when as soon as like, you know, the quote unquote established media or whatever, or even the quote unquote reputable established left media or progressive media, right? We have these different tiers, right? And if they take the, the, the certain line, they get this kind of respectability. I'm not, I don't need to mention too many names right now, but I, <laughs> I'm sure you know exactly oh, what I'm referring to, yep. particularly on the example you just gave. Um, but you know, the history of it, it's, but it's brilliant though, because it's a brilliant tactic to uh, to attack the person, the ad hominem, to label them with, as a paranoid, delusional person. You know, I just started reviewing a new publication. Uh, it was it's a new book that's uh, that it's a collection of uh, psychological assessments and understanding of conspiracy theory. And the whole book, of course, uses it as a pejorative. You know, some of the stuff in it almost makes it akin to, to a mental illness or something. Um, which, which is to me fascinating because it's it, it's it's missing one of the big big points. And one of the big points there is that if we lived in a society uh, where we did have transparent information and we did have trustworthy uh, establishment news outlets and government agencies and so on, you know, people might not be so suspicious and ask so many questions. But the flip around of this is the term cri- cr- uh, conspiracy theory. Uh, which is, is, it's basically weaponized, weaponizing yes. information. It's exactly. a weaponized kind of label. And this actually happened, this is an internal memo at the Central Intelligence Agency mm-hmm. that goes back to the 1960s, mid-60s, after the Warren Commission report. This is um, an internal memo, document 1035-960. You can read about it in Lance DeHavensmith's book, Conspiracy Theory in America, that's part of Mark Crispin Miller's um, from NYU, his series, uh, Discovering America. This is a UT Press book. Lance DeHaven Smith's been talking about this for some time. Um, but in it, it, he talks all about this memo, right, that came out as, as a FOIA uh, request in the mid-'70s around the Church Committee hearings, where, which is when we found out about COINTELPRO and, you know, all the nasty things the CIA, all some of the things that the CIA and so forth was doing. But one of the things that was, was really amazing was the CIA literally was directing people, and in some cases through their Operation Mockingbird programs through media, where they infiltrate media outlets, was to use the term conspiracy theory or conspiracy theorist to cast doubt upon any person and then subsequently their argument or views who challenged the efficacy of the Warren Commission report on the assassination of President John Kennedy. And you may be familiar with with the document, but it literally says this is what we do. We spread rumors, we cast doubt, we make innuendo, we use guilt by association. You know, we use all of these ways to discredit people who were challenging, you know, the dominant narratives, right? And, of course, fast forward to 2008, right, and we had Cass Sunstein, right, Uh, in the Obama administration, using the term cognitive infiltration, 
that say if you don't believe the government's uh, dominant narratives on 9-11 and the 9-11 Commission report, we can infiltrate these movements and we can discredit these movements. I mean, this is right out of the CIA playbook. Yeah. This is right out of the 1035-960 memo used against people that challenge the Warren Commission report. This is, this is historical fact, right? And by the way, it's an historical conspiracy fact about use of conspiracy labels to discount actual conspiracy. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. You know, what's funny about that, too, as you think, it's what's interesting to me, let me rephrase what I'm trying to say here, because you're getting me all worked up here, Mickey. The, the, <laughs> the issue is that so many of the things that we talk about now as historical facts that really build the entire narrative of, uh, let's, let's just stick to post-war U.S. imperialism, at the time, they were called conspiracy theories. Because, you know, in the 1980s, in the early 1980s especially, it was a massive quote-unquote conspiracy theory to say that the CIA was covertly arming and training death squads all throughout Central America to carry right. out what amounted to ethnic cleansing for the purposes of, a, of the U.S. Uh, neocolonial geopolitical agenda in the region. That was a conspiracy theory until it became a conspiracy fact. Uh, we could point to many other examples of precisely that. Even today, I remember... Gary Webb, Dark Alliance. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right. Right. You know, I remember um, talking about the quote unquote conspiracy theory that the banks in the city of London were fixing uh, all of the interest rates and were essentially colluding with each other to manipulate markets. Boom. LIBOR is reported by the mainstream yeah. media and all of a sudden it's no longer a conspiracy theory. I mean, the yep. same is true with the, we uh, covered the, that one. the U.S. the U.S. <laughs> military, the U.S. military and the CIA controlling the opium crop in Afghanistan and uh, Yep. earning massive billions of dollars for their black budget from that and flooding the mm -hmm. world markets with it. It's not even really debated at this point. I mean, you might no. debate some of the specifics, but the point is these quote-unquote conspiracy theories, they become entrenched as conspiracy facts. And then just as you said, those who were called the conspiracy theorists, somehow they're still discredited. Yeah, they're still discredited, and it's that nothing needs updated Right. Like when 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 it was discovered that, uh, that one of the series of gas attacks was not from Assad, yeah. all the people screaming about Agnes, uh, Mother Miriam Agnes and and people coming out saying Assad didn't do it, calling her pro-Assad and all this kind of stuff. Uh, again, it's hard, hard to not mention some of these people's names, but some well-known people on the American left you know, screaming bloody murder that these people shouldn't be there and they won't speak at conferences if somebody's there making those arguments. So much for free speech and expression, huh? Yeah, exactly. You know, I thought those were solid uh, solid principles on the left, but I've been proven wrong again and again. Yeah, so much for having um, an interest in peace and avoiding war at all costs. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, it's fascinating is that, you know, it's like whenever that comes out and whenever the British government and, you know, and the Germans and other people weigh in and they, they say, well, we've looked at this and, yep, we definitely know this didn't happen. So I guess we have to drop that narrative, right? Very similar to the, the plane being, being shot down, the Malaysian plane being shot down over Ukraine, right? Yep. Putin, Putin, Putin did it. All, all of a sudden, you know, German uh, studies, et cetera. Nope, sorry, doesn't look like that was the case. And then that just goes into the ether, right? That was one of the big propaganda points of the Obama administration. And then after that came out, Obama just sort of got mum on the matter and just switched to another anti-Putin narrative, right? I mean, so, but this is the thing that you're right about, and this is also the problem of, 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 of really of history and historical education, and, and, I, and I mean that at term education the way that I described it earlier, not in the way that it may be seen 
societally or institutionally. But the idea is that, you know, you can either shove things down the memory hole or whenever something comes out and is corrected, it's just done so in a really quiet way. Like how many people read the Arata page, you know? How many people read stories in the paper or online bother to go back and check to see, you know, well, is there a retraction? Yeah, <laughs> is there an that. update? Right? I mean, this happens it's very commonplace, but you're right about it, is that the, the record doesn't, it's quietly corrected, but the people that were on it first get almost no attention. The biggest name that comes to my mind, um, well, one, I mentioned Gary Webb, right, who was basically exonerated in most of his claims. But that, although that's the, not, that wasn't... Al- although even the Washington Post continues to smear him when the movie came out. Yes, they did. <laughs> yes, they did. You know, I mean, they have no shame, really, on that, on that topic. But another name that pops up is Peter Dale Scott. Yeah. You know, the deep state and deep politics. Peter Dale Scott was writing about the, the opium trade, the poppy trade, the over, what he calls the overworld, you know, the global banks and, and so forth. Peter Phillips writes about the transnational capitalist class. And this is conspiracy reality. Yep. I mean, this is, this is really happening. Michael Perenni has railed against this, uh, this tyranny of groupthink and this it really is censorship. The idea that you can silence somebody by labeling them is, is really a, a censorship issue, which is why we've long covered it at Project Censored. And even if uh, you know, we don't have a technical stance on, say, 9-11 or what happened to Building 7, Right. What we do know is that the government narratives about some of these things is false, inaccurate, incomplete, right? You don't have to be a quote-unquote conspiracy theorist to suspect that the 9-11 Commission report is impartial and inaccurate. You can just listen to the two guys that were head of it, yep. who admitted it and wrote a book about it. And in fact, the lead legal counsel, John Farmer, for the 9-11 Commission, wrote a whole book and he called the 9-11 Commission report a whitewash from start to finish. I mean, again, we could disagree on why and so forth, but the idea that you somehow blanket out any criticism of the dominant narrative surrounding such a seminal event, you know, that's striking, that kind of groupthink. And people that suspect there's something wrong are deterred from their own independent investigation and going public with it because they fear that their jobs will be lost, they won't get tenure, they won't get their columns published, you name it. It's a very powerful tool, this weaponized terminology but you, but you of know, conspiracy theory. But you know, and, and what you're saying is precisely what we're supposed to fear from, say, uh, totalitarian societies like the Soviet Union, for example, when they talk about you know people being airbrushed out of photos or ideas mm-hmm. having you sent to the gulag or whatever, you know what I mean? Like a lot of those same, that same sort of tyranny of the party line, that's very much like what we have now. It's just, it's done in a much softer way. It's done in a, let's call it a postmodern party line, a party line that has no uh, specific party, but rather it's the corporate party line. And if you translate that into politics, we know, I think anybody listening to this program knows, there is no real difference between Democrats and Republicans. It's one corporate party with two wings, and they serve the same interests. Yeah, again, that's another accurate assessment. And to point it out, right, um, means that well you're you're um, oh you you're very familiar I mean the, the 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 so-called presidential election the race the horse race coverage and so on you know we've already been inundated uh, with with all this stuff for for 2016 
um, the, the notion that somehow you you can't get behind you know the, one candidate, a Democrat or Republican, uh, means somehow you're wasting your vote, throwing away your vote. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, again, and some you know some anarchists say like, well, I'm not voting because I don't want to encourage this criminal behavior. Um, but the point is, is that you know, again, you're right. I mean, even the people in the Democratic Party that are excited about Bernie Sanders, and we could certainly pick out a few things about Sanders that are, you know, the left ought be highly critical uh, of, in particular. But um, it's still part of this same system, and it yep. does seem to serve the big picture overall interests while rallying some in the left base of the Democratic Party, and I, you know, I mean, more left center, um, you know, maybe. Uh, the so-called progressives. Um, and again, it's not that I think that, that what Bernie Sanders is doing is bad or awful or even nefarious on some level. But um, again, I, I think we're deluding ourselves here when, when we keep thinking that, 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 that if only we had this other person in office, everything would be great. Yep. Um, and the problem is much more systemic than that. I mean, you can have people in office that might be, you know, solid humanitarian characters that will tell you uh, when they're out of office, that they run into roadblocks and they can't just wave wands and make things happen, right? Yeah, so, the, there's a system. There's a system that prevents any kind of change, and the notion that 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 uh, that change uh, to that system is going to come from within that system is, well, uh, I think delusional at best. Yeah, and I've said uh, long quoted um, uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, you know, on this, who 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 criticized reformers. Uh, back in her day, right, you know, in women's rights and so forth, and said, you know, you know, those people that are compromising, you know, their, their, their principles, right, you know, they're forgetting that, that truth is the only safe ground to stand upon, meaning you know, giving away some of the principles in order to get some kind of inter- incremental gains. One could understand the efficacy of that and the potential positive nature of that, but it also leaves the system in place that's creating the, impre- the oppression and of course, no beating around the bush here with that, that one of these, one of these uh, clearly uh, guilty culprits is capitalism, no right? Yep. Uh, and it, it, it has successfully uh, avoided um, a lot of, quote-unquote, mainstreaming of discussion. In fact, it's the same as with conspiracy theory. If you criticize capitalism, you're a communist. If you criticize capitalism, you're against freedom in the marketplace. Yeah. I mean, there's all kinds of clever catchphrases that are used against people so that we won't bother to look at the obvious inequality that's created by the current system we live under, and I do mean under. No doubt about it. Well, Mickey, uh, unfortunately, we're out of time. I could probably do many hours with you on many different topics, <laughs> but uh, we'll we'll hopefully have you back in the near future. Again, um, I've been chatting with Mickey Huff. He is the director of Project Censored. He is the co-host of the Project Censored show on Pacific Radio, uh, professor of social science and history at Diablo Valley College. Uh, you should be following Mickey. You should be following Project Censored. They really, really do excellent work, uh, including the annual book which is i i mean it's a must-have i mean it's uh, there's a number of volumes of it sitting on my shelf as we speak so uh mickey huff thanks for coming on counterpunch radio eric thanks so much and keep up the great work and again a uh, longtime reader of counterpunch and I, i'd certainly promote counterpunch and hope more people read it very happy to see the counterpunch radio is up and running Thanks so much. And listeners, thanks again for for tuning in. Remember, uh, those iTunes reviews are really helpful. And don't forget to check out, I mean, I'm sure you're already doing it, but check out the new Counterpunch website. It's excellent. Um, That's enough of uh, my yapping. I will talk to you again next week. Thanks again.